0: My radical dream is rematriation, which is a return to both land and place and the knowledges of land to ancestral knowledge to women in honoring those knowledge systems and the power and place of women.
1: Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it.
0: Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our
1: quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's Let's dream. dream. Hi, y'all. My name is Kelly Piran Alvarez, and I'm an educational specialist with Foundation for Liberating Minds. I will be your host today. Today, my guest is Dr. Heather Schotton. Dr. Schotten is a citizen of the Wichita affiliated tribes and is a Kiowa and Cheyenne descendant. She's an associate professor and current department chair of the Educational Leadership and Policy Studies Department in the College of Education at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Schotten's research focuses on indigenous students in higher education and indigenous women. Her most recent works include Beyond the Asterisk, Understanding Native Students in Higher Education and Reclaiming Indigenous Research in Higher Education as well as a forthcoming book on indigenous motherhood in the academy. Today, we will be talking about decolonizing education from an instructor perspective. Heather, I wanna thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So my first question is pretty broad. Um, Decolonizing education, it seems, means different things to different people in different communities. I spoke with some other people to get a student perspective not that long ago And the conversation was about like diversifying the classroom and diversifying curriculum. So I'm wondering what does decolonizing education mean to you personally?
0: Right. Um, You know, I think you're absolutely right. The way that we all both define and, oh, this feels like a really gross term, but operationalize (laughs) decolonization, I think differs. And I also think that some folks tend to, to use that term interchangeably, and it's not interchangeable with diversity, right? Uh, so for me, decolonizing education is one about pushing back against and refusing systems, particularly colonial systems. It's an undoing of those systems in an effort to return to And when we say return, I don't necessarily mean return to our original, but return to our knowledges, ancestral knowledges and practices uh, in a way that honors them in these spaces. So I think that for me, it really does contend with systems of oppression, systems of erasure, systems that have sought to harm Uh, particularly indigenous uh, and black communities for centuries and how we can maneuver within these systems to undo and to recognize and assert ancestral knowledge to assert the beauty and validity of particularly indigenous knowledge systems and ways of being and knowing.
1: And that kind of leads into my next question for you as well. Because you brought up a quote that you wrote in a co-authored piece on indigenous scholar sisterhood practices. You know that you're finding ways to push back against the assumptions by balancing, you know, publishing for academia, while also serving communities. And that, you know, we must continue to find ways to seek allies to help us advocate for sisterhood practices that strengthen indigenous validity and rigor and research which is part of that decolonizing education practice, right? It's not just the curriculum. It's how you relate to one another in the classroom and in research. So I was wondering if there's any examples of this advocacy or ways that you wish other educators, especially non-Native educators, would or could support Indigenous research and epistemologies or even not limited to Indigenous research and epistemologies.
0: You know, I think there are a few things. Um, I was actually just having a conversation with a group of colleagues earlier this week on an upcoming project to examine how we are embodying research. And one of the things that was a part of that conversation was the way that academia and systems and the system of both tenure and promotion and peer review and publishing um, within academia has really disembodied our research and our creativity and our work in a way that doesn't recognize multiple forms of knowledge or multiple knowledge traditions, right? So within the academy, only certain forms of knowledge are viewed as legitimate. But we have to continue to question, so who determines what is legitimate? Who determines what is valid? And who does that benefit, right? That's an important starting point, right? So from scholarship and research side, that comes to non-Indigenous folks who are in spaces that control what knowledge is is put out there and published, right? So we have a very particular pattern of expectations for what something should look like. What does research look like, right? What is legitimate? And we often couch it in terms like rigor, What is rigorous? Uh, And so people in those spaces, I think, can push back. And this is not just indigenous folks. This impacts uh, Latinx, our Black colleagues, right? Our queer colleagues who are engaging in decolonial work too, because those systems impact all of us in often really detrimental ways that continue to tell us that our knowledge isn't legitimate, right? And it, it's really based in white supremacy because of how we look at, at how those systems are set up. So that's that's one way. Um, and again, it's that pushing back and coming together to really dream what can we create in these spaces? So sometimes that means both infiltrating these spaces as uh, editors um, on journal editorial boards, um, within institutions in particular committees that deal with tenure and promotion for faculty so that we can push back against what what is it that we really mean when we when we say rigor and what you know what counts and what doesn't count. I think one of the other things that we think about is how we teach and how we engage with communities, right? So every semester we're putting together our syllabi and we're putting together the text that our students are going to read. Last semester, one of the things that I did is that I was I was very intentional about who my students, what, what knowledge we began with, who those authors were, right? And particularly drawing from Black, Indigenous, and uh, people of color, from queer authors, from folks who are writing in ways that are reshaping how we think, who are challenging how we think, and that are helping us to really take a look at the systems that we're within. So um, in the classroom, it's also about who we choose to engage with, right? By way of texts and articles or who we invite into the classroom with us. And I think that that's really critical. And I think that that is a major component, um, particularly in academia, because so much is, is based around scholarship And then finally, it's what we actually consider scholarship, right? So it's not just what's published in a book. It's not just what's published in a journal article. That, by the way, most of our communities either aren't accessible to our communities or um, aren't written for our communities. So thinking about what scholarship are we considering? What is scholarship? Moving outside of those boundaries and borders that have been imposed on us. So thinking about how knowledge is presented and how we honor different knowledges as scholarship, right? So our stories within our communities, that is scholarship. Um, Is music scholarship? Absolutely. Uh, I had my students in my class last semester create a playlist. Uh, So that was a part of the work that we did is they created a playlist of what represents knowledge because there's such deep learning that happens through through music, through art, through our, our community stories. And, and there's so many different forms of knowledge that isn't recognized as valid or rigorous um, in the academy. And so I think it's also about engaging different forms of knowledge and honoring them um, as such.
1: As a student and as an instructor, I think those are really great points. And it makes me like challenge the way that I look at what I do and don't do in my own classroom. And there's some exciting ideas. I'm like, I love that playlist idea.
0: (laughs) I I credit um, some of my other colleagues at other institutions, Dr. D.L. Stewart. He reached out to me earlier in the semester and his class was, was creating a playlist. And um, one of our other colleagues, Kimberly Griffin Haynes was, I, I believe tweeted about it. And I actually had the other piece was that I had, students in class that really related through music. And we were looking at a dissertation that came out of our department uh, from uh, Dr. Stevie Johnson that was was not just a hip-hop methodology and, a, and about hip-hop, but it was, right? Like the dissertation was an actual album. And so it really was pushing back against these kind of quote-unquote traditional forms of knowledge, and um, it was beautiful, and, you know, has been recognized, uh, so I definitely want to give credit to to other scholars who, who influenced that work, uh, I think that that's really important to do that, but, you know, I was also responding, you know, to my students, who who seemed to, something about the music, piece. so we would start class with music, so something of the of the day, so yeah, there's lots of things, I think, that you can do in the classroom, that we don't have to do it the way we've always done it, or the way that we experienced it. In fact, we should probably do it radically different than the way that we experienced it, right?
1: Definitely. So I'm currently reading Research as Ceremony by Sean Wilson, and then Decolonizing Methodologies. And there's a lot to learn in there. And there's a lot of things that, you know, we can and probably should include in our teaching practices, in our classroom development, I think some people, though, especially if they're not Native, would question whether or not they should include some of these things, if they have the right to do that, if it's appropriate. So I kind of wonder, you know, if you could answer that question for listeners that would be asking that question.
0: So a right to include practices of, say, relationality or...
1: Yeah. So like if they wanted to teach relationality to their students because they're teaching them research, like, is that something that is appropriate for a non-Native person? No, not knowing if they do or don't have Native students. Is it something that would work for everyone? Or is that something that?
0: Yes. (laughs) And actually, I I think that's a great question because I get that a lot. You know, is this something that we, that I can do as a non-Indigenous person? Right. But, you know, Sean Wilson while, yes, writing about Indigenous research and writing to Indigenous people, I think is also inviting folks in to rethink and reimagine how we, one, understand research, but when we think about how he engages with relationality, think about where we would be in the current pandemic if people were actually enacting and living in relational ways, right? So relationality, I think people often misinterpret as it's just about relationships, but it's much deeper than that. Relationality connects to so many aspects of how we understand our place in the world, how we understand our responsibilities to one another, and so where would we be if we were actually behaving and enacting relational ways of being? I could say we wouldn't be at almost 4 million deaths in the U.S., right? Because we would be thinking about how our behaviors impact other people and what our responsibilities are to the collective and to, to other people, to uh, the environment and how we are in relation. Um, so absolutely. Long answer, yes. I think other people both can and should. So non-Indigenous people can and should. I think that in doing that, though, there needs to be an understanding. Um, It can't be surface. It can't be just the same as anything, right? Like you can't engage in anti-racist work just because you read one book. It has to be intentional, everyday learning and doing and being Uh, So in decolonial work, it has to be a constant learning, unlearning, and doing and being. And I think people often frame decolonization within an indigenous lens, but uh, so many people and communities are engaging in this work because we are so impacted by systems of colonization and in every aspects of our lives.
1: And I think too, like, you know, as an instructor, sometimes it's easy to forget because we get so caught up in all the things that we have to do with service work and engaging with students and grading and lesson planning and going to meetings. I think for for some people, it's really easy to kind of get caught up in this idea that, like, as long as we touch on it once, we're good, but that's not the case. So I'm glad that you, like, reiterated, like, no, it's not a one-day thing. You can't just spend one day talking about you know, relationality, it's a, it's a daily process.
0: Right. Yeah. It's not a checklist. (laughs) Definitely not a checklist situation.
1: Definitely not. You know, and I, I bring this up just because I think students who are listening, who are wanting to see these things, like they need to hear too, like it's a process and yes, you know, some of your professors might bring these things up, but they're trying, they're attempting. So sometimes students need to have patience or, you know, offer feedback like, "Hey, like I know we talked about this. Can we talk about this more?" It's a conversation. It's a mutual relationship between students and professors as well. I think that needs to happen. In my opinion, I don't know if other no. people feel that way.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's important to remember that decolonization is not a destination. It's a process, and it's an ongoing process. But it's not a it's not a definite um, a destination um, by any means.
1: So I kind of want to come back to this idea, too, about like educators who focus on decolonizing their classroom, who push back against Eurocentric or Western pedagogies in their institutions, who push back, you know, colonialism in the academy. They're often met with frustration, hostility, and outright refusal to recognize work that these professors do or the scholars that they're bringing in if they don't adhere to what is considered scholarship, right? By the dominant society. So I wonder uh, these same institutions that are pushing back against that often turn around and implement diversity trainings or offer diversity courses. And this is across the country, right? A simple like search on Twitter can show us that. So how do these diversity courses or trainings relate to the practice of decolonizing education? Like, can we use that as a way? If we're pushing back against those systems, can we use those trainings about I see where you're going with this. This is what you can do better. And I know that it's completely idealistic thinking, right? In theory, yes, like we should be able to do that and it should work. I guess the question is, why doesn't it work?
0: Because we try to make diversity palatable, right? When our efforts become, and when I say we, I mean institutions. For institutions, when the effort is so focused on making diversity or equity or inclusion palatable, particularly palatable to white folks in power, then we're doing it all wrong. And I'm not sure what that's supposed to achieve. And so when we, we, when we start from the position of, is this going to upset white folks in power? And how can we reel it back so it doesn't upset the wrong people, then we've started, we've started from the wrong place. In fact, all of that work should be uncomfortable. Disrupting systems is uncomfortable because it disrupts power. And so those who are in power are not going to be happy necessarily, right? When we think about why don't these actually work, I think we have to reframe that question and we have to start with are they intended to work in the first place? Right, they're working exactly the way that they've been designed to appear as if we're we're addressing these issues. It's always about you know quote unquote doing something. What are we doing? And so it, if we think about it, it's not that they're not working. They're working exactly the way that they have been designed and intended, um, and that is not to disturb or disrupt any of these systems, why would you intentionally do that? So it's a little bit frustrating, right? And I I think that people um, can, again, conflate diversity and and decolonization. I think maybe in a, a more ideal world, we might start from a position of understanding systems of power and systems of oppression and how colonialism and settler colonialism and heteropatriarchy play into and both perpetuate systems of oppression and that they are ongoing, right? That it's not something that has happened in the past, but are present and ongoing every single day of our lives. Right. So we have to begin from that point and then move towards dismantling and an undoing of that. And if we look at at across the country, there's lots of folks who are doing really great work about why, why these quote unquote diversity trainings aren't doing much of anything except what they were actually intended to do, which was to to placate. And so I think we have to re envision and reimagine that work. And we have to do it in a way that is okay with sitting with the discomfort.
1: Okay, so I have a theoretical question for you, Heather. Okay. We're attempting to dream radically. So content aside, or maybe included, depending on on what you're thinking, what would your ideal class look like considering, you know, assessment, room design, interactions, potential goals, maybe content, maybe not?
0: Oh, wow. My first would be to totally do away with grades. I don't want to have to turn in grades. (laughs) Because my focus is on what each student has, how they progressed and what they've gained and how they've grown in these spaces. So to put a letter grade on that feels really gross a lot of times. In, In terms of room design, in my ideal world, my class would completely be outside on the land in connection with place and and you've experienced this throughout our relationship over the years. That I often will take my class and say, "Let's." I, the the four walls of a classroom and desk seems so oppressive sometimes um, for me that I will say, "You know, we're going outside today, and and we're going to sit and be and just talk and learn and engage with one another." Um, so it would be not within not within four walls of a classroom, and ideally in community, right? So in community. And I think the interactions are are really how I strive to be in my classes currently. And it's an ongoing process, but to really be in community and to be a community of learners, not me as instructor at the head, dispensing knowledge, but learning alongside and being in community. Because when I think about, it, you know, when we think about it, we're all students right? So being a community of learners that are really thinking about difficult questions and exploring our understandings and taking on the difficult topics and and really dreaming radically together and reimagining these spaces for, for future generations. So it would involve scholars that are from the community, so elders, artists, folks that haven't published anything in their lives, but are still scholars and knowledge bearers. Uh, So it would be an array of those folks.
1: I really miss taking classes with you.
0: You You can join me anytime.
1: I might. I might. So I want to thank you for joining us on Dream Radically. I really appreciate your thoughts and learning with you. I hope that our listeners, if they didn't know what decolonizing education was before, they have a good idea now. And if they already knew something, that they've thought of ways to push back and to espouse decolonization in their own educational practices. A reminder to our listeners as well that all of the thoughts presented in this episode belong to Dr. Shotton and myself. They're not reflective of others' thoughts and perspectives. They cannot necessarily be universally applied. Um, nor are they a critique of any specific institution. So it's just, this was just a conversation on decolonizing education. But thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me. I, I love the work and so appreciative of the work that you all are doing and, and so inspired by it.
1: Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, org. Our social media pages at Foundation4LM. And consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.